The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Next year is going to be an ugly election year in which you can expect very little to get done. The debt ceiling has become a pernicious political tool which doesn't help either party. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We're confident at the end of the day that the Senate is going to put American families first. 330 million Americans are expecting and waiting for us to move the ball forward and get stuff done. And when that doesn't happen, it is frustration. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthews on Bloomberg Radio. You've made it to Friday and to sound on the fastest hour in politics. I'm Emily Wilkins here with my fellow Bloomberg government reporter Jack Fitzpatrick. We are filling in today for Joe Matthew. Well, in just a few minutes, we're going to speak with Congressman Mark Pocan. But first, the big news of today, it's been the big news, I I think, both in Wall Street and in Washington, D.C., the inflation numbers out this morning showing some of the highest inflation that we've seen in the last 39 years. Uh, President Biden did go ahead and speak on this today. The White House kind of tried to actually downplay this report before it came out. Uh, But President Biden said that he understood that prices are higher now and that this is hurting families. So I think it's uh, it really is. It's a real bump in the road. It does affect families. When you walk in the grocery store and you're paying more for whatever you're purchasing, it matters. It matters to people. That was President Biden speaking a little bit earlier today. Uh, now wanted to bring in on this conversation Wisconsin Democratic Congressman Mark Pocan. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, obviously, you know, we're hearing President Biden uh, say that this is hitting families, but he's also saying that we've hit the peak of inflation, that it's only going to get better from here. Is this message uh, resounding in your district? Congressman? Hi, how are you doing today? In and out a little bit. I'm good. I don't know if, if you if you heard the last minute there, but we were chatting a little bit just about the higher inflation numbers we're seeing today. And President Biden's message that while it is bad, it is going to get better. And I wanted to see how that message is resounding with your constituents. Well, I, we've heard that from uh, pretty much every economist we've talked to. Um, you know, I'm a small business owner, have been for 34 years, and you know, I can tell you, uh, you know, we see it very directly in our small business, just like our constituents do. Uh, when you have everything kind of reopen at once, as things kind of did, and you have most people uh, who didn't have any inventory, and companies just cranking back up, especially overseas, where uh, it appears most things seem to be made these days. Uh, what's happened is there's a scarcity of items, and that scarcity has often uh, resulted in some of the inflation, as well as some other factors. Uh, but clearly, uh, that's something that I think, you know, people understand is part of coming out of COVID. Uh, and the economists have told us that uh, with the help of the Build Back Better Act and uh, time and some other efforts, uh, we should be out of this about, you know, hopefully halfway through next year. 
Congressman, I, I know Republicans have really tried to hit you guys on Build Back Better and the deficit impact that it could have, at least in certain years. It's sort of front-loaded in terms of spending, uh, and the implication seems to be that could add to inflation. I would note that economists have said that's fairly minor compared to uh, the supply chain issues, but I'm wondering what you make of the CBO report today showing that if the expiring measures in the reconciliation bill that you all are trying to pass were all extended without separate pay-fors, uh, we'd be talking about a $3 trillion addition to the deficit rather than a, around $231 billion. Does that change uh, anybody's mind on, on the inflationary impact of this bill? No, the long-term tenure ramifications are still the same. Uh, this is a bill that is paid for uh, by the wealthiest and by corporations that often haven't paid their fair share, which is completely different than how the Republicans passed the tax break for the wealthiest in this country just a few years ago. You know, they didn't do anything to have a single penny of paid for, uh, and yet, you know, we've done just the opposite. So, you know, the, this will have stimulative effects in the economy in the sense of it'll create good family supporting wages. It'll help women be able to enter the workforce. It provides assistance to the average working family. And again, um, we do it in a way that uh, won't have an impact that uh, it's paid for. And you have to look always at the, the longer term, the tenure as we score things, uh, not any given year, because that really distorts, I think, reality. Congressman, obviously, the Senate is working on that social tax and spending bill right now. The House passed it several weeks ago. Uh, Chuck Schumer has said that he would like to get this done before December, but uh, the end of December, rather. But time is running out. If this doesn't get done by the end of the year, is that going to make it that much more difficult to actually get this bill over the finish line? You know, I, I've spent for months when reporters have asked, uh, when is it going to get done, that no one in my district asked when, what day it's happening. They want to know what's in the bill, right? So I think I've focused really on that. And there are a lot of really great provisions from child care to senior care to uh, prescription drug pricing to the, chi the tax break for 40 million American families. That's the one issue that if we don't get it done, I think by mid-January is when that next check would go out that people would see an impact because otherwise it would be continuous from what we've had happen, uh, you know, through the, the COVID release. But, you know, again, what day it happens, I, I wish Chuck Schumer the best. It'd be great to have it done soon because I'd love to share with the constituents what benefits are there. But less important is the day it gets done. More important is the important provisions uh, that are in there and that stay in there. Well, I want to push back on you a, l a little bit there, because there are some provisions that are going to be expiring at the end of this year, including uh, that child tax credit that a lot of families have now come to rely on. Uh, that ends with the end of December. If you cannot get the, the so-called Build Back Better, the social tax and welfare package, the big thing done, should Congress move on a smaller bill that would just extend that and a couple of other important tax credits that will otherwise expire? Yeah, and that's the one I did mention. I, I, so what I was saying is because that check doesn't go until about mid-January, we could still have a couple more weeks to do it, and you can make it retroactive. Uh, we do that quite often. Um, so that one to me, isn't in crisis. And many of the other ones are annual uh, tax items that definitely don't have to happen uh, in the next two weeks. It's something that you can do and still make retroactive, which is something Congress does quite often. So again, the day it passes is uh, significantly less important 
than what actually passed. Real, real quick follow-up, and I, I hate to just focus on process over substance, but does that basically mean there's a little bit of a deadline in maybe mid-January that matters that we should be looking for? Not really. I mean, again, you know, we can do anything retroactive. Uh, you know, I understand why I get asked this by reporters, but I, I can tell you real people in my district uh, don't ask that. They just want to know, does this mean I'm going to pay less for child care and have more money for my, my family? Uh, the answer hopefully will be yes. Uh, sure. People ask if uh, you know they're going to be able to pay less for prescription drugs, especially for people who you know use insulin. And the answer will likely be yes. Uh, but those are the things that I think are what are really important. And you know the the daily uh, kind of dog race of everything, a horse race of everything that uh, many reporters ask isn't uh, nearly as important as that. Make sure we make sure that those important provisions stay mm-hmm. in the bill. Uh, I don't know how many people necessarily know about the debt limit, but I know it, it would have been very important if this whole debt limit back and forth had gone wrong. It sounds like a debt limit bill is going to come back to the House uh, sometime probably early next week, and you guys can clear that. Looks like uh, basically a glide path. I'm curious what you, as a progressive caucus member, make of this deal to, uh, you know, you got Senate Republicans to vote to preemptively block themselves from filibustering. Some some Democrats I've talked to have said, you know, we could bend the Senate rules for other important bills, too. Is there a precedent here on this debt limit deal that you see? Well, I mean, I, I wish we could figure that out, honestly, because there are many things that I think we need to get done for our country that, you know, the arcane rules of the Senate that require 60 votes, not 51 votes, uh, make it difficult. In this particular case, you know, the debt ceiling, lifting the debt ceiling is really um, one of the more Washington-type things when you try to explain to people back home, because when we've authorized the spending, we have a second attempt at, at really mucking things up through lifting the debt ceiling to then you know mm-hmm. put the check in the mail, so to speak. If any real person signs a home mortgage, you don't then decide every month whether or not you're going to mail the check in. And that's kind right. of what the federal government does with the debt ceiling. So I, I think this is one where I'm glad Republican leadership um, you know, did the right thing and made sure that we're, we're getting you know, our responsibility done because it's important for the full faith and credit of the United States. Right. However, on many other issues, I wish they would see it that way also because that's the way things always did operate. I mean, this is uh, unfortunately a pretty rough time uh, to be in Washington because of the divisions are so strong. Um, you know, the Republican Party really has no leader other than a former president in exile. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really difficult given how they seem to still, um, you know, wait for approval from the former president rather than just getting their jobs done while they're in Washington. Well, Congressman Mark Pocan, thank you so much for taking some time out of your Friday afternoon to join us and and go through uh, just the the laundry list of things uh, that Congress has been doing and has coming up. I I mean, Jack, this has been, I know that you've particularly been following the debt limit debate very, very closely. And it it seems at this point that they are going to get it done well before that December 15th deadline. Yeah, this bill essentially has a glide path. And I think the next big question is, do we see agreements like this in the future where they say we don't want to need 60 votes in the Senate? Well, coming up, we assemble the panel to discuss, continue to discuss the news of the day. I'm Emily Wilkins here with Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, co-hosting today with my Bloomberg government colleague, Emily Wilkins. We're in for Joe, who is off today. And now we are joined by our regulars, the Bloomberg politics contributors, Jeannie Shianzano and Rick Davis. Happy to have you guys with us. Now, Emily played earlier in the hour that sound uh, from the president discussing the, the severity of the numbers we've seen on inflation. He followed up on the Labor Department report showing a 6.8% annual gain in the CPI in November, the most since 1982. Uh, he did use the phrase bump in the road, and I'm, I'm curious about sort of the, the communication tactics by the president on this one. Uh, Rick, I'm curious what you make of the president's comments. He, he says, we're around the peak. He expects it to go down, though he does seek to assure people he understands how severe this issue. How is this playing, do you think, just with the public? Well, you know, I think initially uh, the denial that they were in as an administration, and this would include the Fed, where they were talking about how all this uh, inflation was transitory, really left out the American public, right? It was, it, it was impacting people, and, and they were just not sounding very empathetic. This is, a, this is a full change, right? Even the Fed has said, hey, it's not, we're not talking transitory anymore. Uh, and, and Biden is obviously getting into the game of saying, hey, we know this is affecting real people. So this is the first we've seen this administration really start to empathize a little bit with people who are paying the price of inflation. That said, I mean, like, why in the world would you create the expectation that it's peaking, which means you're now under the gun to have it go down the next time, you know, this report, the CPI comes out. And, right. and when we look at others who we know, uh, Larry Summers has said, this is uh, inflation. It's going to last around a couple of years, maybe more. Uh, and, and it's going to be much more difficult to get rid of. And so if he's even only partially right, Biden is setting himself up for failure when he's finally starting to empathize with the American public over the, the situation around inflation. So I, I think he's putting himself right back in another box that could be very tenuous in a political uh, uh, election year. Right. If you're going to make predictions, they had better be right if you're the president giving a speech. Um, I'm curious, again, as I mentioned in the interview with the congressman, I, I don't want to give the impression that we think all of the inflation comes from the bills we're seeing Congress work on, but that has kind of dominated the discussions around the main reconciliation bill that Democrats are trying to pass. Jeannie, I, I'm curious, looking at this 6.8% number, how does that work its way into the mind of Joe Manchin? What, what is his response going to be? 
I, I think his response is going to remain what it has been, which is that they are not under the gun to pass this bill before Christmas, certainly. And he's very clear on areas in which he would like the bill to be amended and changed. And he's been very clear that the time frame can be extended. So I think this is just adding more fuel to his fire that they need to take another look at this. And I would say when I heard Joe Biden say today about reaching the peak, I cringed because the signs are opposite. You look at the supply chain, you look at the labor shortage, and all I could picture was going into 2022, the amount of campaign commercials that Republicans could use against him with that very clip if it indeed hasn't peaked. And we should reiterate that it doesn't even have to be the actual number. It's the amount of pain that people are feeling that's going to come back to haunt this administration. So I think they have to be very careful with this messaging about this is a peak, it's a bump in a road, we're on you know, the right side of this at this point, because that is very likely not going to be the case. So Jeannie, I know that you've been saying this now for all along, but it seems now with these numbers out today, it is the chances that that social tax uh, and spending bill get passed this year, they just went from, from slim to almost none. Uh, and, and I'm in New York, Emily, so Chuck Schumer hopefully isn't going to have my head on this, but I can't imagine any way that they push this through with this kind of inflation numbers. I, I, you know, they don't have to do it. They've had successes that they could talk about. They can revisit this in the new year. They could take some steps. I mean, you, would, you were just talking about this $3 trillion add to the deficit. And that's something they need to address. So I, I don't see how this happens this year. And if it happened this year, it's probably something that would make it really, really hard for some of these Democrats running in moderate districts. You know, Rick, I, I know we've talked so much between tie and inflation with the so-called Build Back Better. But I'm wondering, are there other things that Congress can do to help ease some of this pain from inflation? Things with supply chain, uh, other, other points where they can sort of alleviate some of the pressure Americans are feeling? Yeah, I mean, this is the pitch that the Biden administration started to roll out this week. Um, one, to take pressure off of spending so that they can continue to spend and, and, and get past the Build Back Better plan, but also to try and focus on issues that they actually may have a bigger impact on, like the supply chain. Uh, Gina Raimondo, the Secretary of Commerce, formerly governor of Rhode Island, really went out hard and said, hey, look, part of what's driving inflation isn't just the spending, right? Let's not let's the spending can be good and it's driving the economy, but uh, but we got to fix the supply chain backups because that puts pressure on spending. Also, uh, when you when you can't find product you need, when 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 right. stores can't put product on the shelf, it creates that pressure. So I definitely think that this is something they think they can do uh, and still be able to convince people they need that Build Back right. Better plan. Well, coming up, we're going to talk to Congressman French Hill, Republican from Arkansas, a guy with a lot of experience in banking and financial services, good person to talk economy with. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. 
Today's inflation report is continuing to shake up debate in Congress. We're going to be getting the latest with Arkansas Republican Congressman French Hill here in just a minute. I'm Emily Wilkins here with my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick. We are here now with Arkansas uh, Republican Congressman French Hill, a member of the Finance Committee and also someone who definitely has some thoughts. Uh, I know, Congressman, on today's numbers and news about inflation. Uh, and, and Congressman, I, I know that we've tied so much of this conversation to the so-called Build Back Better, uh, that social spending and tax plan. But I wanted to just get away from that for just a minute and see what you think Congress needs to do to address this inflation, anything that they need to actually actively do rather than not do. Well, I think there are three components uh, to why we're seeing this inflation. Emily, thanks for having me on. First, that classic definition of too much money chasing too few goods, that classic definition is fueled by both fiscal policy, which is why the Build Back Better bill is relevant, and secondly, to the super accommodative monetary policy that we've had uh, intensively since the pandemic, but effectively since the financial crisis. We've had very low rates, almost zero rates, and we've been buying Treasury securities and agency securities, $120 billion a month. So first is we do need to begin to taper monetary policy, and I would argue we should not be spending more uh, fiscal policy, providing more fiscal stimulus. Third thing, anything that we can do to uh, help the supply chain become untangled is important. And recently, Congress just last week on a bipartisan basis passed a bill that will assist uh, in uh, cargo shipping uh, in order to facilitate that in a better way, for example. So, Congressman, I am I'm confused. I, I, maybe not confused, but I, I want you to kind of drill down on the Republican uh, line of attack on this reconciliation bill and, and sort of educate me why the fiscal side right now is so important to you. I'm looking at the latest uh, CBO numbers on the the deficit impact of the Build Back Better bill. You know, in the first year of enactment, it would add about 155 billion to the deficit. Uh, even if you assume extensions of expiring policies, the next year it adds $264 billion. These are not numbers that are close to zero, but they don't seem to be numbers that are that big in the context of a $20-plus trillion economy and inflation. Why do we hear Republicans talk so much about Build Back Better in the context of these inflation numbers in the near term? Well, I think it's I think it's in the context of we are running a, a regular budget deficit that's very high from our four and a half trillion that we spend annually. And we've had three large bills proposed this year, one point nine billion not paid for in additional COVID relief when we already had a trillion unspent that was appropriated uh, in, uh, by the Congress in February. Then the infrastructure bill, which was supposed to be a paid-for bill, which only about half of it over its 10-year period was paid for. Now we come to Build Back Better, which has a price tag listed that you're quoting from of $1.75 billion. But today, CBO confirmed it would add $3 trillion to the debt over the next 10 years and is actually going to run at $5 trillion, not $1.75 and their uh, logic was, look, as President Reagan warned us, there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. 
And so CBO in that analysis assumes that these programs are made permanent. And that, when you don't pay for it, uh, whether you're talking to Larry Summers, Democratic Treasury Secretary, or Jason Furman, Democratic economist, these are inflationary fiscal stimulus actions. Well, I, I certainly take your point on the anticipation that these would be extended. Democrats want to do that. Um, on the monetary side, what does today's mm-hmm. news say about the Fed's uh, stance, it, its current stance on tapering? Should they have been acting more quickly? Do you have complaints? What, what do you think about the monetary side on today's news? Yeah, such a good uh, good question. And this goes back to uh, Chairman Jay Powell recently announced that he would be reappointed. I told Congress uh, two weeks ago that we needed to drop the word transitory about inflation, something I've been talking about for the better part of a year, that there was a high risk that it wasn't transitory, meaning it wasn't tied purely to the supply chain disruption. So I would have started tapering early had I been a voting member of the Open Market Committee. And one reason for that is look out what the reverse repurchase agreements have been in the marketplace over the summer. They've grown and grown, which means I think there's way too much liquidity out uh, in the in the system. So I would have begun tapering a bit sooner. I think the Fed next week will be analyzing their forecast for inflation in 2022. Uh, we may have a flat uh, to slightly higher commodity set of prices, say in the oil and gas production. But I believe that residential real estate, for example, is way understated in this year's CPI and could continue year-on-year growth that pushes the CPI up in the first half of next year. Congressman, uh, we're also getting some news now that on Tuesday uh, you will be taking a vote on a piece of legislation that would create a special envoy to combat Islamophobia. And this comes after uh, one of your colleagues, uh, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, compared a Muslim member of Congress to a suicide bomber. Now, I don't believe this legislation actually touches on Congresswoman Boebert at all. She's not included. It's just creating a special envoy. Congressman, will you be supporting this legislation? Uh, you're you're breaking news to me today. I haven't seen it or read it. Uh, I don't know that we need a special envoy for Islamophobia. We need to fill the special envoy jobs that are vacant now at the State Department working on key issues. Uh, there's no doubt about that. For example, we need a permanent uh, special envoy confirmed by the Senate for sure. and, and negotiations. Congressman, do you think that Islamophobia, kids? do you think that Islamophobia, though, is an issue based on some of the remarks that we've heard from your colleagues? I listen, I listen to a lot of terrible rhetoric from both the left and the right. Uh, Anti-Semitic from the left and smart Alec comments uh, that could be considered uh, anti-Muslim on the right occasionally. Both are bad. Both should be condemned. We shouldn't tolerate that. People who are elected to public office mm-hmm. ought to be able to speak in a civil tone well, and Congressman, not uh, have that kind of rhetoric. Congressman French, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. That was Congressman French Hill. Coming up, we reassemble the panel, get into some of the other topics making news outside of Washington today. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com. 
You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Big week coming up next week for lawmakers as Democrats try to wrap up work on a debt limit measure. And as we have been discussing this hour, Democrats want to make progress on their main social tax and spending Build Back Better Reconciliation Bill, a bill of many titles. Uh, But as we have heard from Congressman Pocan earlier today and as Congressman Gottheimer said yesterday, they don't feel that there's a deadline. Maybe even the child tax credit expires at the end of the year, but they work through it. They make it retroactive. This could be a January thing rather than a December thing. This was also the topic of conversation today because of a Congressional Budget Office score requested by Republicans who said, okay, Democrats call this a $1.7 trillion, uh, $1.75 trillion bill or so, but they've used a bunch of gimmicks to have many provisions, including the child tax credit, expire. Obviously, Democrats do want to re-up those provisions. So Republicans say, what is the real cost? What is the real scope? And uh, the CBO says if all of them were extended through a decade and there's no additional pay-fors, we're looking at a $3 trillion addition to the deficit over 10 years rather than the original score of the actual bill of $231 billion. So Senator Graham uh, is talking about this. He has a a number of things to say. Emily, what do you make of of this CBO score? Well, Jack, I just wanted to see if we can clarify something real quick here, because we've been telling listeners on this show correctly that there is a good chance that Republicans could take the House next year. So if Republicans are controlling at least one chamber, maybe two, they could take the Senate. I mean, how likely is it that some of these programs are actually going to get extended? That is going to be really tough. I uh, am getting ahead of myself now, but I'm fascinated by December 2022, because not only does this reconciliation bill aim to extend this child tax credit to December of 2022, but as we've been reporting, they're aiming to kick the debt limit to sometime after the midterms. Um, If Republicans take either chamber, do we see Democrats then have to rush to do a reconciliation bill to address child tax credit, debt limit, all the things they want to do at the last minute before ceding power in at least one chamber to Republicans. I think that's a key question for them. Uh, And it doesn't sound like they expect much help from Republicans on the child tax credit. Uh, And that's not surprising because there's been so much pushback from Republicans on the facets of this reconciliation bill. So following this number that, again, is a, a projection, it's not the actual bill we're looking at, but a projection of what could happen if they extend all of these programs. And we can expect to hear yes. that number a lot from Republicans. You are going to hear that from Republicans quite a bit. Here is what Senator Lindsey Graham, the top Republican on the Budget Committee, had to say about the reality of extending these provisions. The original bill was scored at $1.75 trillion in cost. And the, the way they got that number is they took 17 new programs that would be created, created by Build Back Better and they sunsetted the programs one year, two years, three years. If you believe these programs go away after one, two, or three years, you shouldn't have a driver's license. That's a good line. You shouldn't have a driver's license if you believe that. (laughs) Um, Jeannie, I've got to ask you about this because you have been our resident skeptic of Democrats getting their top bills done. 
And let's say they do get this reconciliation bill done and create these programs and uh, extend a little bit the child tax credit. Do they actually manage, as Republicans evidently think they will, to extend all of them? What happens in the future? Do, do we actually see everything extended without pay-fors, or what, what, what should we expect? Yeah, and I have been a skeptic on the timing and the size. I have always said I think it's going to get done at the rate about mm -hmm. $1.5 So, you know, I do think it gets done, and I do think it is helpful to the economy, and I think it gets done in the new year. In terms of this uh, CBO score, I have to agree with Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden when they say it fails to take into account the offsetting that's going to occur with new revenue and new savings. And that is a major issue. Sure, Republicans are going to use this number going into the midterms. Democrats are going to have to counter by letting people know the reality of this was that they have new revenues coming in, they have savings, and they were going to offset. That was always the plan. So I had a bit of uh, you know empathy for Chuck Schumer when he called this a fake CBO score for that reason. You know, Rick, I also wanted to come to you a little bit. I mean, let's say that we are in 2023. Republicans did really well in the midterms. We have a speaker, Kevin McCarthy, and he is facing the expiration of some of these programs. I mean, what what is going to be the thought process here on whether these programs wind up expiring or not? I mean, is is, is Lindsey Graham correct that there is sort of any chance uh, that that they wind up expiring? Absolutely. I mean, this is the problem with reconciliation, right? It's not a process where you're supposed to legislate. Legislation should go through committees. It should be marked up. And before it becomes a law that therefore doesn't need to be re-upped every year or during expiring periods, you, you actually have some confidence that you know what's going to be funded every year. When you go through reconciliation, it's just as easy to change reconciliation every year as it is to get it. So you're, you're, you're cheating the system by saying, oh, we're going to bypass all those rules. We're going to bypass all that procedure. We're just going to throw this stuff into reconciliation. We're going to pay for it with temporary revenue raising. This is not permanent revenue raising. This is temporary because it's in a reconciliation bill, meaning, as you point out, Next year, not December, but in January, February, when Republicans do take control of the House of Representatives, if they do, they can change 100 percent of this stuff. It doesn't even have to be expiring provisions. It can be the entire bill because under reconciliation, you can change everything within one year. Well, one other major story we need to touch on today, of course, was the Supreme Court decision to leave in place Texas's ban on abortion after about six weeks of pregnancy, uh, refusing to block that law uh, while letting clinics and doctors press part of a legal challenge at a lower court. So this is not the end of the legal story on this, but a, a significant decision that, that really steeply divided the liberal and conservative justices on the courts. Um, Jeannie, I'm curious, what first, your initial thoughts on today's news, uh, and in particular, following up on that, what uh, what happens next? How, how significant is today's decision by the Supreme Court to not step in in Texas? 
I think it is critically important. You know, this is in the wake of their hearing the other week of the Mississippi challenge. And of course, I was reading very, very carefully Chief Justice John Roberts' partial dissent and his joining with the liberals on this. And I am empathetic to his concern that the goal of this law was to strip the Supreme Court's authority. And by allowing this decision to stand today, they have essentially allowed that to happen. I mean, he said in part that you are stripping the court's authority. They have already decided Roe, and they are now denying that right to be protected. So I I think his is a very institutionalist approach, and I think it's critically important that the court retains its legitimacy in very hard to do in the wake of these kinds of decisions. And of course, it could be that we see other states, whether it's in gun rights or other areas, choose this path. And what would the Supreme Court say then? So I think it's a dangerous decision, although we may see them after this comes up from the lower courts later change their mind. Another big story uh, in Washington this week, uh, although, of course, a somber one was the passing of former Senator Bob Dole. Rick, I actually understand that that you were at the funeral today. I'm wondering if you can just sort of talk uh, about what the what the sense of it was, what people were saying, uh, what the vibe of, of it was. Yeah, it was pretty somber. I mean, uh, there was a, a, a really amazing crowd at the uh, National Cathedral to celebrate uh, uh, Bob Dole's life and, and say goodbye. Um, uh, uh, two presidents, President Biden and President Clinton, were there, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, uh, what seemed like almost the entire United States Senate, a chamber that Bob Dole managed uh, and, and really held in great reverence. Uh, I, I would say that the, the comments uh, at the uh, funeral by uh, his fellow senators, Pat Roberts from Kansas and Tom Daschle from South Dakota, were particularly uh, touching uh, about their experience with him and, and what he meant to the chamber. And I, it, I think it's a great reminder, especially to those senators who attended the event and, and the other uh, official Washington types, uh, cabinet members, to remember that there were people in a time when compromise was not a dirty word uh, and that that we could actually get things done in the normal course of events uh, uh, in the Senate between Republicans and Democrats. And you kind of hope that there's just this little bit of kernel that gets into the the psyche of these office holders that um, maybe they maybe they can return to at least partially a better time. And that certainly was the theme of today's uh, uh, funeral. And I think Bob Dole would have been very proud of that message. Right. It, it, listening uh, in particular to the president's comments seemed almost to be eulogizing a, a different time and different generation uh, rather than just one person in Bob Dole. Thank you so much, Rick Davis. Great comments there. Jeannie Sheehan Zeno. Thanks again to Mark Pocan and French Hill, the congressman who joined us earlier today, and my co-host, Emily Wilkins of Bloomberg Government. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.